Hello, I'm Alec Avdakov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. So much has happened since the last episode. It's honestly mind-boggling. To start off, some news from Patreon. Recently, Steve Verdoliva is the newest patron, and I am so happy that he is supporting the show. I must also thank Rosa for being my second patron. She is in the Grenadier tier, and she gets special privileges for donating $5 a month. So, be sure to go to Patreon. Half of the first $20 will be donated to Ukraine. Therefore, if you want to support my podcast and a good cause, go to the link for the Patreon below. I am also so grateful for Zach Twomley for having me on his show. The sheer amount of growth due to him is incredible. I am forever grateful for that opportunity he gave me. But I must not forget my roots, and I want to thank everyone who has listened to me from the very beginning. In another bit of news, I might be appearing on a future episode in the wonderful podcast, The Alexander Standard. This is a very fun and engaging podcast that ranks the successors of another great, namely Alexander the Great. They rank everyone from Perdiccas to Cleopatra VII. I had a school project about Philip II, Alexander the Great's dad, and I might be appearing on their podcast, which I am mighty excited about. To all listening, please, please, please go follow that podcast. As a final reminder, be sure to follow my social media. The links to it are in the show notes below. Also, one last thing. I am getting over a cold, which is why my voice might not sound like its normal self. Anyway, I'm sure you're all dying to get back to the main story and understand why I chose to discuss Britain in the 17th and 18th centuries. Let's go all the way back to October's episode to understand why the events in this episode unfolded the way they did. In the episode two months ago, we mainly discussed the politics of Sir Robert Walpole. He became the first Prime Minister of Great Britain in 1721 after the South Sea Company scandal brought down the previous government. Walpole's government was built on its foreign policy outlook of staying neutral in European affairs. This opened trade to Britain and made the nation rich. Prussia, a small, sandy little kingdom on the periphery, could only dream of the amount of riches, power, and prestige Britain was building when Walpole was Prime Minister. A major achievement of Walpole was a defensive alliance between Britain and Austria, which ended the Anglo-French alliance. Walpole steered Britain clear from the War of Polish Succession in 1733. Therefore, despite the bloody war on the continent, Britain continued to get rich off of international trade. Now on to the fun bit, when Captain Jenkins presented his ear to Parliament to persuade the British legislature to declare war on Spain. The British public was chomping at the bit to start a war against Spain, but the momentum to start war was mainly based on the Spanish policy to seize British shipping rather than poor old Jenkins. See, 
when Spain seizes ships, the British get angry. Although Walpole and the Spanish Ministry were against war, the two economies were intertwined with trade, and both high ups in Britain and Spain, respective governments, thought it would be mutually destructive. This is a similar principle to why a war between the U.S. and China would be disastrous today. Both nations would suffer from the trade drying up. This was during a time when economies were becoming interdependent on each other. There won't be global recessions or anything like that, but trade involving sugar, coffee, chocolate, and other luxury goods would be scarce once war hits. But if we're going to talk about sugar in the 1700s, we must bring up the fact that labor used to make the sugar was from African slaves that died in the thousands. The trauma of branding with hot irons, transportation in disease-ridden ships, and the labor itself is almost impossible to fathom. Almost all major European powers relied on slavery in the 1700s. One can even argue that serfdom and feudalism are a type of slavery as well. It was a very brutal time to be alive. So anyway, Britain and Spain signed the condition of Pardo, so that they would avoid war. The terms were that Spain would stop seizing British ships, while Britain would remove its fleet from the Mediterranean. The British South Sea Company would also pay Spain sixty-eight thousand pounds. However, even though the convention was passed in Parliament, it was not enforced. The leash on the dogs of war had been loosened, and the conflict between Spain and Britain would spark in the autumn of 1739. Britain's declaration of war would be published on October twenty-third, the day after the attack on Puerto Bello in what is today Panama. This was the first time Britain had ever plunged itself into a war with a great power without allies. Both Britain and Spain expected a quick victory over their enemy. Spain had an absolutely massive series of colonies in North and South America. Beating heart of the Spanish colonial empire for multiple centuries have been the silver mines in both Mexico and Peru. This silver fueled Spain's European economy as well as its trade with China. Therefore, the galleons, or the massive wooden transport ships Spain used to move their silver cargo, were of massive importance to the Spanish economy. Spanish silver back then would be like oil today. If Spain were cut off from its silver, its economy would be severely hindered. The British strategy then was to disrupt as much silver shipping as possible, and most of this would be based on attacking the crucial ports in the Caribbean. The vital region of interest was Panama because of its central location and ports used for silver exports. The expedition to the Caribbean would be led by Vice Admiral Vernon. Their expedition was to be expected to be a lightning strike, like how the Japanese expected Pearl Harbor to proceed. There is a quote from Richard Harding's "The Emergence of Britain's Global Naval Supremacy: The War of 1739 through 1748" that that demonstrates the high British expectations. A member of Parliament wrote at the time, quote, "America is the place where we ought to direct our chief force." There the Spaniards cannot resist us, and there we may do more than make incursions.
we may take and hold such places as we may think to be either convenient or useful. It is what Spain cannot hinder. It is what Europe cannot prevent. And by holding the places we take, we add to our own strength at the same time that we diminish the strength of our enemy. This quote essentially means that the Spanish possessions in the Americas are weak. We must attack as soon as possible. The operation went off as planned. Vice Admiral Vernon led the expedition to the Caribbean in the fall of 1739. He attacked and captured Porto Bello. This practically severed Spain's lifeline of silver shipping to Europe. Meanwhile, in the American colony of Virginia, a captain named Lawrence Washington was raising militia forces to fight against Spain in the West Indies. He was the older brother of some little kid named George. I'm sure he'll be of no significance. Anyway, I would go more into detail about the war, but sadly I don't have the time. In 1740, the war in the Caribbean for the British was one of missed opportunities. Vice Admiral Vernon was forced to withdraw his forces after attacking Cartagena de Indias twice. There were other attacks that did not have their expected success, and the soldiers in the Caribbean were now dying in droves of yellow fever. On top of that, the French had a strong fleet stationed in northern France in the port of Brest. It was feared that with the British flank gallivanting in the Mediterranean and the Caribbean, Spain and France would coordinate a surprise invasion of Britain. But the Kingdom of France, whose foreign policy was led by a man who was 87 years old, just sat there and did nothing. Then the wild card was played. In December of 1740, Frederick II of Prussia, good old Fritz, had attacked Britain's ally, Austria. And captured the rich province of Silesia. In January of 1741, the British government pledged to Maria Theresa to write to Frederick and to deploy 12,000 Danish and Hessian auxiliary troops to help her in the war. But on top of the political trouble on the continent, British Prime Minister Robert Walpole was under the gun. There was constant criticism of the government's conduct of the war which weakened Walpole's position. However, due to Tory division, the Whigs won a majority in the House of Commons. Yet, Walpole's grip on power was slipping. The matters on the continent were of huge importance for British interests. See, the Habsburgs still owned the Austrian Netherlands in what is today Belgium. If Austria's hold there were to weaken, who else but France would step in to take it? A France with Antwerp and Ostend to use as invasion ports was a terrifying proposition for Britain to stomach. Therefore, despite how overstretched they were in the Caribbean, Britain agreed to accept a credit of £300,000 to the Austrians. Then, in 1741, in April, Another bombshell exploded when Prussia won the Battle of Molwitz. This gave legitimacy to Frederick's cause and outside help in the name of France looked likely for Prussia. This was another blow for Britain. Plans for an 80,000 troop expedition in Italy by France were revealed during this time as well. This would leave both Austria and Britain weak in the Mediterranean. Meanwhile in the Caribbean, it looked as if Britain would once again gain the initiative. 
I'll let Harding's book tell you what was happening when he writes, quote, On the March 25th, the expedition force had captured the outer forts of the lagoons of Cartagena de las Indias. The fleet was now safely anchored in the outer lagoon. The army was healthy and preparing to move into the inner lagoon and towards the city itself. Vernon did not doubt that soon they would be the masters of the place. The Spaniards had already burned or sunk their ships to hinder the progress of the army. The fall of the place would give Britain control of the galleon's trade route. Britain then began calculations of European diplomacy with Cartagena as already theirs. The Duke of Newcastle wrote, quote, I lay it down, Cartagena must be kept, at least for the present. If kept, it must be properly garrisoned, that they say will take up to two to three thousand men, which makes Wentworth's army very low. According to Harding's count, Britain's army on the Isles amounted to roughly 28,000 men. Britain had no tradition of conscription like the Prussian Canton system, so raising troops was incredibly difficult. So on May 21st, when King George II of Britain was in his other realm, Hanover, he found his Hanoverian electorate in a rather weak position. Therefore, he ordered that an army must be committed to Germany. This would leave only 15,000 troops in Britain itself. Remember, this was during a time when France could muster an army of 40,000 men in a matter of a few months, and if the seas were in their favor, Britain would be squashed under the foot of France. Thus, the interests of Britain and Hanover began to divide. If that wasn't bad enough, the army in the Caribbean continued to weaken because of tropical diseases and a lack of supplies. Vice Admiral Vernon was forced to, once again, withdraw his troops from the third attack on Cartagena de Indias. It was the worst case scenario for Britain. France went against its ally on the continent and Austria, and defeat from the Spanish in the Caribbean was likely. How would Britain or Hanover survive? Back in episodes 24, Dizzying Diplomacy, and episode 27, Fritz at Rotositz, I mentioned that an army of 40,000 French and Bavarian troops were sent along the Danube towards Vienna. I, however, failed to mention that there was another French army in play on the European chessboard. France would send an army under Marshal Maillebois to make sure Hanover would stay neutral. However, Logistics and Britain's influence would be heard in the center of Europe when the Convention of Kleinschnellendorf was agreed to. See, Britain wanted Maria Theresa to simply recognize that Silesia was Frederick's so that she could focus on their true enemy, France. Therefore, when the two exhausted armies of Prussia and Austria agreed to the convention, it served Britain well. It was nearing the end of 1741 and the war against Spain was going absolutely nowhere. The opposition to Walpole's foreign policy was growing in strength. Austria, Britain's only major continental ally, was on the brink of collapse. France was advancing its power onto German territories of the Holy Roman Empire. Britain was bogged down in a war with Spain it could not decisively win, and Walpole, Walpole was simply old. 
The final straw that broke the camel's back was in 1741 in December, when Walpole's candidate for the chairman of the Elections and Privileges Committee was defeated by just four votes. That final stab signaled the death of Walpole's political career. Men who would have supported him saw the tides had turned against Walpole and deserted him. Walpole grasped at straws in an attempt to stay in power. He even tried to make amends with Frederick, the Prince of Wales. Sir Robert Walpole would stay Britain's Prime Minister until February 3, 1742, making him the longest-serving Prime Minister Britain has ever had. He served a total of 20 years and 315 days as PM. He would stay active in British politics until 1744, when his health, which was never too stellar in the first place, took a turn for the worst. Sir Robert Walpole died on March 18, 1745, in an extremely pivotal year for Britain. What can I say of Walpole's legacy after these two episodes with him? Well, he was a scoundrel but a clever scoundrel at that. He was Britain's Otto von Bismarck that led the nation deftly for a little over 20 years. He was corrupt, but incredibly competent in parliamentary politics at that time. He led Britain through a time of growth and peace. He was truly one of history's great. With that impressive legacy now behind us, I believe I shall have to make this episode shorter than usual. How can I follow up on a political death like that? We discussed the beginning of the War of Jenkins' Ear, Britain's foreign entanglement in Europe, Britain's reaction to Frederick's invasion of Silesia, and the fall of Sir Robert Walpole. How can Britain steer through the heady waters it has ahead of them, France on the rise, stalemate in the Caribbean, and the fall of its great Prime Minister? Would the Jacobites make another attempt on the throne now that Walpole is gone? Would Britain commit even more soldiers to Europe? Would France and Spain invade Britain and crush them once and for all? All of these questions will be answered in a future episode on the life and times of Frederick the Great. I believe I shall conclude to you by saying that I hope you all have a happy new year.